Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf on your flagship station for New York sports. The Fan, Sports Radio 66 and 1019 FM, WFAN, New York. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Rick Wolf Sports Edge. I'm your host, Rick Wolf. As many of you know, my dad, Hall of Famer sportscaster Bob Wolf, passed away last weekend at the age of 96. My dad lived an incredible and amazing life. And for sports fans, well, you knew him as the TV voice of the Knicks during the Knicks' only two championship seasons. For others, Dad, for many years, was the voice of the New York Rangers. He, of course, called Don Larson's perfect game, the Colts-Giants overtime game, and so much more. But for me, I saw Dad as, well, well, my father. And when it came to the world of sports parenting, I think it's fair to say I learned pretty much everything from my dad. Dad, even on occasion, would substitute host for me on this show. And that was wonderful because he knew how to be a great sports parent. In any event, back in 2011, when my dad was interviewed by Mike Francesa here at WFAN, Mike, as you know, was one of my dad's uh, former students at St. John's. And I can tell you it was one of the finest interviews my dad ever did. He was most, most proud of it. And so to honor my father this morning... I thought it'd be a nice gesture to replay that wonderful interview by Mike Francesa. Again, this was from 2011 when my dad was 90. We're going to spend a little time now with uh, a man who has had one of the great careers ever in broadcasting. He has a new book, Bob Wolf's Complete Guide to Sportscasting. And uh, he is still going strong now, and he has been in the business for a very long time. He was my teacher in college many, many years ago. Uh, you can see all the wonderful things that a lot of guys said on the back. Uh, Bob Wolf is one of the voices, the prominent voices of my youth. I learned so much from watching him back then and considering his new book a gift. No one understands better the how-to part of the industry. That's from Jim Nance. Bob Costa said wonderful things on and on. Uh, and uh, Bob Wolf uh, is a guy who has been in the right place at the right time. He's called some of the most meaningful games in the history of sports. And he uh, is one of the few guys that I can say probably doesn't have an enemy in the business. Now, a lot of guys in the business, we, a lot of us squabble, we fight, we yell, we scream. Everyone loves Bob Wolf. So I don't know how Bob has done that and, and maintained his career, but he has. Bob, welcome. How are you? Um, what a pleasure to be ah, with you. Thank you. Very nice. Good to see you. How's the book doing? Well? Very well. Very well. V- very pleased with that. Oh, good. And things are going well. You're still going strong as ever, which is amazing. This is what decade now is this? Eight? My Ninth year, ninth decade, seventy second year as a pro. Seventy second year <laughs> as a pro. Now, now, listen. There are some things that aren't going to be duplicated. That is about it uh, in this ever changing business. And you have uh, you've been involved in many different people's careers, and also had the. Uh, good fortune of being in the right place at the right time, calling some of the historic games of all time. Uh, Don Lawson's perfect game, the uh, 58 
championship game, which was the landmark game of the NFL, Amici. Uh, all the way through, you have had many wonderful moments in this. Some of the great Nick moments, which I grew up with you with, uh, on, and, and our audience did in New York. So many great moments you've had in this, in this business. Lucky breaks along the way. The first big break I had was when I broke my ankle. That helped. Go ahead. Tell me because I was at Duke University. I went there hopefully to be a major league ball player, and I got my spikes caught in a rundown play and all of a sudden snapped. So I had a cast in my leg, and the fortunate part was that CBS Radio in Durham, where Duke was, used to broadcast all the college games, Duke, North Carolina, all the rest. So they said, sit up and tell us about your teammates. So I sat up there, and I said... They said after a while, how about do a little play-by-play? I'll give it a try. And then the regular announcer left, and they said, Bob, how about doing the games for us up here? I said, great. I said, let me speak to the coach first. So I went to speak to Jack Coombs, the old Philadelphia coach. And I said, coach, I came here to get to the big leagues, but now I got a chance to be a broadcaster, so what should I do? He said, well, Bob, I was thinking about moving you from center field to shortstop. I'm not, I don't think you're a home run hitter, but you can do the job in the infield. But he said, let me tell you something. Your arms and legs won't last as long as your voice. So if you got a chance there, keep talking, <laughs> which was good advice. I think he was very kind to me when he said it. So I broadcast all through a college, the college basketball. I did a game every single night and studied from midnight until 2 or 3 in the morning. Somehow got pretty good grades because I know... Phi Beta Kappa at Duke, so <laughs> folks, yeah. Well, but lucky breaks continued. And then World War II came along. I went overseas with the CBs. Before that, they had sent me to the, the Harvard Business School to learn accounting and so That wasn't my forte. So I went overseas and I found out that everything they had taught me, and that was how to serve on a ship didn't apply to what I was doing. We were at an advanced base in the Solomon Islands. The rain kept beating down. The supplies were buried in the mud. So I said to our photographer with the Seabees, take pictures of our before and after. I'm going to write a book, send it back to Washington, how they had to revise the rules, what they teach, because what they're teaching is what they do on a ship, but not on this mud-filled hole. So I wrote this book, and I thought after I sent it back, I didn't know anybody to the supply department. I said, you know, this could result in being court-martialed, <laughs> telling the Navy how to run, or maybe commended. Luck. I got a letter of commendation. They said, come back. We're going to put you to work. We're publishing your book, rewriting. You can rewrite the Navy regulations about advanced bases. That's how I got to Washington. And when TV came along, I decided, well, let me see my hand at this. So I got the job as the first TV announcer in Washington doing sports. And then after a while, all my sponsors there also were doing all the games at Madison Square Garden. They said, well, let's bring you up to the garden to do those games. And then I kept building the NBC Game of the Week and lucky events all the way through. <laughs> your first team, was it the Washington Senators? Right. That was your first team? And you used to do some, yeah, like a singing group with some of the players, oh, yeah. right? Well, in those days, yeah, I can't imagine now if I tried right. that again. In those days, well, you can't see Jeter and A. Rod being in your singing group. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but we went on road trips, and I brought my ukulele. As a young kid, I did a lot of sing. I sang with the college band and so forth. Right. So I brought the uke and sang along. And believe it or not, 
they all joined me on the buses. It was a big thing. We had a coach named Walter Boom Boom Beck. Remember that name? No. Well, Boom Boom, boom was because the ball kept hitting off the fence when he pitched over there. <laughs> boom Boom Walter Boom Boom. But he used to lead a group singing on the bus trips. It was really very different then than it is now. I'm sure. Now, as you said, if I said, you guys want to join my singing group, Bob, see my agent. <laughs> yeah. Bob, yeah. do this. Yeah. Have you spoken to the PR? You know, yeah. never would have happened now, right? Not unless you had a lot of cash. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, and then, I mean, you guys used to appear on TV as a singing group, right? You guys the, were on television. Well, there were different rules during the Senators. I never gave which team was winning or losing. The Senators were always losing, you know. Right. So I'd say, well, folks, it's 18 to 2. <laughs> and you didn't say who? They'd figure out who was losing <laughs> right away. <laughs> but uh, things were really different different. The ball players in those early days stayed in the lobby just talking sports, right. strategy, and so forth. I was, for my time, I was pretty good because I could run, I could catch the ball, I could do all those things that counted. A couple of my idols were Nellie Fox and Louis sure. Aparicio. That's great players. Averaging one home run a year. Uh, yeah. Could they play today? Would they be drafted today? Louis Aparicio, well, he was a wonderful player. Oh, boy. terrific. Yeah, beautiful, great-looking shortstop. But Whitey Ford might not because a little guy didn't Absolutely. throw out used curveballs. Absolutely. And so, in those days, as you know, pitchers pitch complete games. All the time. And well, now, you saw where those guys break in there. Camilo Pasquale, oh, right? Camilo Pasquale pitched... A ball that I called the curve then, which is an overhand curve. He spun it down like this, and the batters are trying to hit it out of the dirt or the mud in Griffith Stadium. The old twelve to six curveball. Oh, right? amazing! I never heard that that term anymore. Another big big thing, the term I never hear as often is what's your out pitch? You yeah. know, the strikeout. Yeah, what's most of those great pitches worked to get the count so they could get the guy tempted and get an out on an easy fly or ground ball. Absolutely. We're talking with Bob Wolf, his book, Complete Guide to Sportscasting, <clears throat> America's longest-running TV and radio sportscasting. He's been, as we said, at the Garden, a News 12 forever. Uh, his son Rick is uh, the uh, uh, sportscaster who does the program. He has built a career out of his stuff with youth sports. He's made it into a, an enormous business. Uh, and he does the show here on Sunday mornings. Rick Wolf's show on Sunday morning is, is Bob's son. Uh, and Bob, once in a while, fills in and uh, <laughs> elevates the program. Uh, but uh, I've known Bob since he's, he taught at St. John's for many, many years, too. Uh, taught sportscasting there uh, for many, many years. I was a guy there who Bob said to me at the time. Now, now I wasn't a guy who wanted to be a play-by-play guy when I was in the class. And Bob said, you know, I don't know. This is what Bob said to me. He says, you're the best writer I have in the class, but I don't know if you're going to be the best sportscaster in the class. And I said, well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do play-by-play anyway, Bob. Little did I know I was going to wind up doing this, but, uh, you know, for a few years. But uh, I remember being in the class with you, which was uh, great fun. And you have had a lot of uh, guys, ladies and gentlemen, come through, and you've uh, tutored out at News 12 for many, many years. So you've mm-hmm. had an amazing career. You really have. What, are you, what, what is the secret of your longevity? I'm just... A normal, average guy. I figure if there's some different mold you want to make, just be your average. Because basically, this business, people get the wrong conception of what it is. They think you have to be a journalist. You do not. You don't have to take any exam. You don't have to take any test. You don't have to take any particular schooling. You have to know 
what a story is and how to present it. But basically, it's as much mental as it is physical. In the very early days, it was all physical. The announcers were hired for beautiful voices. They didn't all know much about sports, but they were hired because they did the commercials well. But after a while, they said, let's change it and get some of these former ball players in who can tell you what really does happen in the dugout or the huddle and whatnot. So all of a sudden, we have people who are not wordsmiths, but they could add that extra spice and content. And now we've gone through a third phase, and that is, okay, they all do a good job. But how about getting people with strange voices or unusual opinions or something that's different? What they were looking for in one word is this, content. Content is now what gives you longevity. Absolutely. Content is king. It's the business we're in now. It's it's true. Well, I mean, look how much everything has changed, Bob. I mean, fans now have incredible amounts of information at their fingertips. I mean, that even more than we had since I've been in the business, forget since you've been in the business, I mean, it used to be information that was really the privilege of people who were in the industry. Now the computer gives everybody, I mean, there's every game. I can get a box score. I, I, I take these box scores out every day for the 61 Yankees. You can get a box score for any game ever played now. You get those, <laughs> press a button. I mean, it's amazing when you think about how much that has changed. Do you like where sports has gone, or has sports, from your standpoint, lost all its humanity and fun and everything is it is it is it still do you like it or has it changed too much i love it but i understand now it's more show business than truly sports because it's a business and if people command an audience like you command an audience and an audience brings in sponsors and that's how the stations and the networks get paid so if a person is different you might like his views but he attracts an audience in the early days, a great example of that was Howie Cassell. Right. Won the award this year, that year, twice. The most popular and the, mo- the most unpopular yep. because he did opinions. Now the people who are fading, unfortunately, are the fellow who used to just give the spores and the highlights because they're shrinking their time, two or three minutes on a sports show, and they can't compete with the, the people who are doing sports all day. As a consequence, what's come up? opinion makers, and that's what's thriving across the country, and you were a pioneer in using opinions, may not always agree with you, but they wanted to hear what you had to say, and that's what, that's what, it's a big thing now in sports. No question. Radio.com. Hi, this is Rick Wolf to pay tribute to my dad, Bob Wolf who passed last weekend, WFAN is replaying a terrific interview that Mike Francesa did with my dad a few years ago. We're talking with Bob Wolf, the complete guide, the sports casting. Um, what was, was there one, you've been in every part of the business. You've, you've done everything. Uh, you've anchored programs. You've been a sportscaster and part of a newscast. You've done really long form. You've been a play-by-play mm-hmm. man. What was your favorite part? Was there one part of the business that you liked the best? What was your favorite part of the business? What I really enjoyed, I did all the sports, as you know. I was very fortunate in doing the, the championships. But I really liked baseball the best. Being a play-by-play man. Yes, because it was really not just the play-by-play. It was the creativity. Particularly, it's great practice to be with a losing team because now the people 
watching or listening. I had to be entertaining for the rest of the you time. You be a good storyteller. That's right. A storyteller. I did the dog show and sang on the dog show. <laughs> dogs seem to love it. Humans, I'm not sure. But at any rate, I enjoyed the fact that I was holding an audience just because I seemed in some small way to appeal to what they wanted to hear. And I never tried to do anything else. I just thought my job was to hold an audience. And that's basically what I do, which doesn't mean you have to be prepared or different. I'm part journalist, part entertainer. And part preparation, and that's about it. We're talking with Bob Wolf. Who was your favorite player? Who is the one player that you just <clears throat> you just had a you really had an affinity for? You really liked? Yeah, I mean, even as a person. I mean, it didn't have to be as a player, but what? Who is your favorite guy that you've been around in sports? What player? Well, I'd say rather than favorites, the ones who are the most unusual, and I'd say of that, Ted Williams, because every year when Ted Williams came to town, it was imperative I interview him. And Ted was... Would he always talk to you? Here's what happened. I began to learn the personalities of what these people were because with Ted Williams, I soon found out that he had a lot of people who disliked him because they didn't understand him. When Ted took batting practice, everything stopped in the ballpark, including the opposition team. They'd stand up on the steps to watch the master in action. So if he didn't do well in batting practice, he'd storm away. If you're in front of him, he'd push you out of the way. He was different. So every year I said, Ted, let's make a deal. When I come up to you to do a show, don't just scowl at me. I said, you tell me when you'll go on. The rest of the time, we'll just be friends. I'll chop and say hello and chat. He said, I'll tell you what, Bob, if I come into Washington and I'm batting and he gave me a figure, I think it was 320, and hit so many home runs, I'm on. Great. The time before he was to get to Washington, he got in a tiff with the Boston press and the fans, crossed home plate in a, in a huff. He thumbed his nose at the press box, spit on home plate, and said, never again will I ever do an interview with any member of the press radio TV. His next stop was Washington. So I went up to Ted and said, Ted, you made a promise to me that you'd go on. But I said, I got to tell you this. As a reporter, I got to ask you what you did in Boston, how you feel about it now. So I'll tell you what. As a friend, if you say, you can't do it today, we're still friends, bow out. But if I, if you do go on, I'm going to put you on the spot. So what are you going to do? He said, when do you want me? I told him, where do you want me? By the dugout. So we did that show. And the show went on. He was very contrite. He talked about the fact that the things written about him just steam him up, and sometimes he can't control himself, but he's, he's sorry when he does it, but, but that's the way it is. It was a terrific show. I added a Mickey Mantle show that I did. I went up to New York. Channel 11 had the Yankee games. I was now at the Garden doing all the shows on Channel 11. I showed it to Lev Pope, who was the general manager. I said, Lev, this is a series I can be a pregame show for you. We sold it to Colgate Palmolive, who was the Yankees' pregame show, the Red Sox brought it and so forth. That unusual interview and the Mickey Mantle interview changed my career in New York, too. And in those days, Bob, we were talking with Bob, well, <laughs> the sponsors had a lot to say, right? About they, That was the key, right? It was like oh. the Schaefer Circle of Sports or whatever. The sponsors, people don't realize that now. It doesn't work that way. The, in those days, the sponsors... Picked the announce. They pretty much picked the oh, broadcasters, right? The sponsors were the king. For example, 
when I was doing the Washington games, we always had a sponsor. Many of the sponsors I put out of business. <laughs> <laughs> For example, they had me drink a beer every half inning. On the air. On the air. And by in double headers in Washington, by the middle of the second game, they were <laughs> holding me up when I did this. So one year I said, look, you got to get a designated beer drinker because I don't think I can do two games, you know, yeah, drunk beer. <laughs> so we got a guy named Johnny Batchel who looks like he drank beer, did drink beer, and can speak about it convincingly. But even he was getting a little woozy after a while. So I said, John, I'll give you a suggestion. I'm going to bring a bucket out to the ballpark here. So make believe you're drinking. Just keep it in the back of your throat. Talk how wonderful it is. And when the red light goes up, spit it in the bucket. His timing wasn't too good. (laughs) (laughs) This is just great beer. (laughs) Live and in color. That went into the bucket. And so did the sponsor. God. Oh, yeah. And then they they taught me how to smoke cigars. Robert Burns. Mel Allen, they said, he put it in his in his mouth just like a lollipop, right in the middle of his mouth. So one day I was getting cigar smoking practice, and I put the cigar for the agency man in the ashtray. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm eating my food. I'm putting it in the ashtray. He said, when you smoke cigars, it's there forever. Just let it dangle out of your mouth. You don't ever put a cigar out of your mouth. So they, they practiced with the cigarettes I had a big problem with. L&M was a sponsor one year, and they said, you got to smoke these cigarettes. I said, I don't think I can do that. So he said, well, you got to stay on the show. You want to be, be hired? Yeah. So I, I finally settled. They put the cigarette pack in my breast pocket, sticking out, and they settled with that. And with Vitalis, that was when they had the greasy kid stuff. Sure. Remember yeah. that? So I got the show on my hair. I had wavy black hair. And on the second show, some guy sat right there in the ABC TV studio looking at me. He said, what do you got on your hair? I said, nothing. A little water, maybe. He said, it looks like greasy kid stuff. I said, come on now. I wouldn't go over to the enemy. Believe me. I don't have it. Come with me. So they they washed my hair. They did this. And finally, a little guy in the studio there who, who worked with me part-time, he said, hey, wait a minute. Turn down the lights. Because it's the glint of of the waves. So they turned down the lights, and I became a, a shadow of my former self, but that show went on. The sponsors gave me more trouble than any ball game. They were crazy, right? That, yeah. that was the big deal in those days. Oh. Thank God that's changed. I mean, we, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be well, you know, if I had to deal with those sponsors. When like I that. did the World Series, I'm now doing a lot of TV, network shows, and the rest, but I always called on Gillette, which was the sole sponsor. Was, they love baseball. Every yeah. time I got to Boston. So when I said to them at lunch, I felt I was auditioning. I was telling them baseball stories, strategy, and whatnot. And then at the end of the conversation, they asked me, what's your ambition? I said, to work for you, do the World Series. So I said, we'll keep you in mind. So finally, in the World Series then, they picked one announcer from each winning team, American and National League, one from either the TV or or, and Gillette, at that other guy, they made the, the selection. So I did the All-Star game in Washington that year because Gillette said they needed a Washington announcer. Gillette liked my work. It was 1956. They put me on. I did the the Darn Larson game, and and they said, you're part of the team. So they brought me back in 58 and 61, and then 
the next year, 62, NBC hired me with Joe Garagiola to do the game of the week. Unbelievable. I mean, it just shows you how powerful. And Gillette, growing up as a kid, we all remember the World Series was Gillette, 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 was everything with the World Series. Here's what happened. Money. Now, if you go to the World Series, the Super Bowl, whatever it is, they're all uh, so many sponsors, they, have, they don't have that power. So the network say, we'll do it. And if you get with the right network, you're on forever more. No question. We're talking with Bob Wolf, his book, uh, The Complete Guide to Sportscasting, America's Longest-Running TV and Radio Sportscaster, Going Strong. Uh, I can't tell him how old you are. You want to tell him how old you are? Sure. How old? I'll be 91 next year. 91 <laughs> years old. Amazing. I mean, uh, Bob Wolf, Complete Guide to Sportscasting. That's a, that's a varied group that agreed they all like you. That's a varied group to have like in anything. I, mean, I don't know how many things Oberman and I agree on. There's not too many, but uh, that we agree on you, that's for sure. And uh, uh, Bob, is, as we said, has been one of the great sportscasters, great voices, and has had a remarkable career. He's going to be 91 years old, still working, still going strong, and he, has, he does have a driver now after all these years. His wife, who actually is is a speck older. He's been with an older woman all these years. Oh, he yes. married how many years? 65. 60. God bless. He's married 65 years. Un- uh, unbelievable. Tell um, – there is, and, I, and I say this honestly, and I don't say it's embarrassing, because he, everyone knows what a nice man he is. There are a few guys more respected in the business than you. I, you don't have a I – mean, I've never heard anybody ever even utter a bad word about you. I mean, there's, there are a few guys who are universally as well-liked as you are. What would you say to someone, and I know you do it all the time, and people ask us all the time, you see young people who want to get into business, and they ask, how do I get in, how do I get into this business? How do I break through? What do you tell them? A couple of things. One is, I applied every once in a while for a job, but most of the jobs I got, I went in with an idea, creative idea, how I could help the station of the network. And if you do that, you speak to usually the program director or the station manager. <clears throat> if you do that, you are part of the idea. In other words, let's do we'll do this. This is my idea, and so and then automatically by say we'll do this, and you're part of the show. That's one way. The second way is whatever you do, make it a little different. Sometimes you get like forty or fifty people applying for the job, and one stands out. It could be banter, it could be a amusing note, it could be an opinion. It could be anything that's, that's different, and it stands out because there's so many people doing it that you've got to be different. Those are the big things I'd say. And the last thing I'd say, there's no farm system in this business. You don't have to go far away to find a place or a job. You've got to do it yourself. It, you have to be a little, little bit of aggressive in this, but you've got to go out and look. Yep. As you said, be part of the – anyone's looking for their business to be elevated or helped. You want to be part of the solution. You want to be Absolutely. part of a new creative idea, but I'm part of the idea. So you want to be part of that program. And, and you know, it's funny. People don't realize that if you bring anybody a package show, if you ever can get a sponsor, now it's not easy to get sponsors, especially these days, but if you package a show that is already paid for, they'll, they'll run the show. I mean, they, you know, they will, unless it's just awful, which nine times out of ten it won't be, they'll run the program. They really will. Suppose we did this. Suppose I was looking for the first time for a guy who has strong opinions, great deal of knowledge, and will answer questions back and forth and do that, they say, I'm not sure that's going to work. 
but this guy named Mike Francesa can do that and make it work. <laughs> okay, I'll buy it. <laughs> well, I, I think you know it's. I think it's actually. Hard. I think it's easy now to get it work, but I think it's harder now to break through. Oh. because I think there are so many avenues out there and so many different programs doing so much the same thing. I think it's even harder than it was for Dog mm-hmm. and myself. We got here at the right time. I think it's harder to become that brand now than it was 20 years ago. I think that's going to be the hard part for the next generation is how to stand out and be that brand. You know, I, I think it was that, that, that we, we hit at the right time, which once you can do that, it's, you know, you keep getting, you know, people pay attention to you. That's what helps. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're Bob Wolf, you're going to always get work. You're Bob Wolf. You've done World Series. You've done super, you've done big events. You've done championship games. I mean, you've been able to work your whole life. I mean, there's, you know, and there's, there's a core of guys who can do that. I mean, you grew up with the, you know, Kurt Gowdy's and the old, you know, Marty Glickman's and all those kind of guys in the business, right? Mel Allen. I mean, you bumped into all these guys all the time, right? I mean, these were, right. these were your guys, Red Barber and, you know, all of them, right? Vince Scully, all these guys, you know? In the early days, they were strictly descriptive announcers. Mel Allen, beautiful voice. Right. He never gave strategies or analysis. All those early fellows, it was the voice. Then the content came in. Then the being different. For example, you mentioned your your former partner Chris, right. unusual voice Absolutely. and so forth. Yep. Voice has gone way down the scale. Doesn't matter. In the beginning, Dog and I weren't considered to have good voices. I mean, that was we were we were not considered to be guys who had good voices. Yeah, it was hard to get a job if you didn't have a good voice. That's right. Very, that's changed completely. Completely, content is is taken over. No question. And I think Cosell changed the things a lot. Don't you think so? And and they let the players in, which was going to happen. I know he didn't like the jock rockacy, as he called it, the jock rockacy, but. He changed things because once he got on the air, it really kind of just changed. It really broke the mold, right? right? And there's one other thing that I should mention as help. Words are no longer counting when it comes to play-by-play. Let me give an example. In the old days, if I was calling a home run on radio, there's a long drive out to left field. Jones, the left fielder's up against the wall. Leaps can't get it. Home run! Right now, Michael Kay says, see ya. Words. All the other announcers, because TV picture is so great, you don't need words anymore. One of the great calls of all time had no literary value. Russ Hodge is saying, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant. It's emotion that counts. And by the way, speaking of emotion, I was enjoying you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was getting on the, the NFL a little bit. The NFL. And yeah. it's always amazed me how you can get emotion and still survive a full afternoon for five and a half hours. Hey, you know, sometimes I don't. Uh, and Red Barber slaughtered that call. He thought it was horrid, right? Oh, uh, he, oh, he didn't like that Russ Hodges call. He, he, no, <laughs> I mean. He did not think that was very good at all. No. But it's different now. John Sterling, an example, very theatrical. You know, I mean, that, you know, some people don't like it. Some people do. So I, there's different ways to do it. It doesn't matter. If you have an audience, you can like them and not like them. It can be good. It can be quite not good. An audience still means sponsors and networks. They love the ratings. So that's it. This morning on the Sports Edge, you were listening to a classic interview with Bob Wolf conducted by WFAN's Mike Francesa. Back in 2011, when my dad was 90. We're talking to Bob Wolf, who has had an incredible career. Was is 
baseball, you were a baseball player, so baseball is probably your first love. But you did a lot of football, too. You did a lot of great games. You were a big football announcer. I did Rose Bowls, Sugar Bowls, Gator Bowls. I did three different uh, pro teams, Baltimore Colts, Cleveland Browns, Washington Reds. Did a lot of football, did hockey. How was John Unitas uh, as an interview? Was he easy <laughs> or hard? He was strictly businesslike. He was, huh? Yeah, you know. He got, got a pittance for playing what he played. Magnificent, as you know, as a Wasn't passer. a happy man, right? He, didn't, he never seemed to me like to be he, a very happy he, he man. Was, he was strictly business. He, he had to make his way. Make his way. He never really enjoyed. Great player, though. Yeah. For example, Mel Allen right. was never always distressed that he wasn't sure the Yankees would call him back. And finally, they didn't. And he was heartbroken. But every year he'd say to me, Bob, do you think I'll really be back again? Yes. Mel, will you stop worrying? <laughs> After 25 years he was worrying. Who did, when you were starting out, who did you, who did you listen to? Like what guy did you say, boy, that guy's pretty good at this. So was there a guy? If we get a moment for a quick story. Yeah, absolutely. Bill Stern was a, a big announcer. Absolutely, very and, big. And my father, who, by the way, was an, elect- was an engineer. Right. My mom was very graceful dancer, singer, but they knew, the friend knew Bill Stern. He suggested, I was starting out in college, that it'd be fun to call on Bill Stern and get a little advice. So I went to see Bill Stern, and he suggested that I take something else of a more stable nature, like a businessman, use my, my Duke degree, and I said, thank you, Bill, and left. And when I told my dad and his friend, they were really upset that he didn't encourage you? No. <laughs> he gave me good advice to do something else. But it's not going to change me. I'm going to do what I want to do. Just a few years later, when I got the, my first big NBC job doing their sports shows, Bill Stern was doing the play-by-play. And he had to say, and now stay tuned for Bob Wolf How good with, is that? with the sports news. And then a few years after that, when he left NBC, ABC grabbed me to be his color man on the games. Unbelievable. And you wound up working with Bill Stern. And from that point on, every time they saw me, Bob, I was so sorry what I said. I said, Bill, you said the right thing. I'm just lucky in what I'm doing. But it was so unusual that we worked together all these years. That is amazing. You know, I got a book here, and I've never read it, Bob, because I get so many books. But Radio Master Ted Using. You know, I don't know much about Ted Using. Tell me something <laughs> about Ted Using. Ted Using in the vernacular of that day, would be called a dandy. A dandy. Yeah, you know, he was, he had the right perfume. Right. He should came with him for two weeks, he was still, <laughs> like that said. But he was very effete in that. He was very particular about the words he used. Right. He was doing boxing. Right. And he'd say, and now there's claret coming out of the pugilist's nostrils. People say, is that good or bad? Is that supposed to be blood? Yeah, it was supposed to be blood. It was wine. He he couldn't he couldn't say the word like blood. The I mean, that, jug. Okay, that, I that's it. too earthy, you know. Claret. I've yeah. never heard that description. Nobody before. else tried it again. <laughs> so he was a little different, Ted. Usually, he was different. All right. One quick thing about yes. when his eyesight was fading him. Right. He then used a board with lights on it, and his spotter Jimmy Don would press the light so he could do it that way. Wow! Really amazing. And then he lost his eyesight. Sixty-one. We're spending some time this year chronicling 61. Mantle Maris, tell me something about 61 that you remember. <laughs> it was an amazing... Were you with the Senators in 61? Yeah, but I, was, I did all of Mantle's biggest home runs. Oh, you did? Okay. I did the tell, me major about, home... tell me something about Mantle. Well, Mantle, 
in the early days was very shy about going on. But that shyness was part of his charm. He was like, you know, like the Huckleberry Finn, Tom right. Sawyer. He was always that way. And he became a very humorous fellow. He was great. With Mantle, I always wanted to know because he hit those home runs lefty and righty. I thought of all the home run hitters I've seen during the years, he by far was the greatest home run hitter because he could do it righty, lefty, and then he could beat out a drag butt. So he, he hit it every way you could. Were you in the stadium when he hit that tape measure home run? Oh, sure. I was there. Was it, it, was it a legitimate clout or was it overdone? It went out of the home, out of the ballpark so fast, I couldn't go into, and what a long shot it's going, it is over. I, I Have you ever seen a ball hit there before? Line drive. Just right over the left center field roof. With a gale behind it. Right. Line drive, like a tee shot that was just going down just the fairway. Clipped off the National Bohemian sign, the big bow sign, over the fence. The Yankees PR guy, Red Patterson at the time, when search, you got to find out how far that went. He went out beyond the fence, and he found some kid who said, yeah, I saw it. And Jane Levy did a, a book about it later. Yes. And he interviewed the kid and found out the kid hadn't seen it gone over the fence. No, he never saw the ball, yeah. He was making the ballpark. <laughs> he said it landed there. But he never saw it land it? anywhere. No, he didn't. So I, I bring that up a bit in the book. But it was amazing thing. In New York, he hit one off Pedro Ramos. Off Pedro Ramos. In fifth, yeah, that you another miss, Boston missed game. by that far going out of the ball. The first one that would yep. ever done that. So, Roger Maris was a great friend of mine. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, nice I, man. Yeah, but I always played these guys by knowing a little bit about them. So when when he was being besieged by the writers, he'd come into Washington, for example. I'd say, Roger, good to see you. Tell me how your kids are doing. And I'd say, Roger. Hunting and fishing, what are you up to these days? I never mentioned baseball to him. So at the end of the year, there was a Look magazine, and they said they're going to do a big story about Roger Maris, the new champion. And they said, who should we get to be the interviewer of you for the press and radio? And he thought of me, he said, Bob Wolf, use him. So I, I did the interview for him. Why? Because I didn't embarrass him. I asked him baseball questions. You were, smart, you were smart enough to ask him stuff he liked to talk about. That's right. That's, re- that's very smart. Very, And he was shy, right? He was very reserved, right? Very reserved, yes. He, all the acclaim made him so nervous. You know, his hair fell out. Yeah, he had a tough time with it. It was tough being measured against Mantle. It was tough in the city, right? He was such a Mantle. Mantle was comfortable by then being Mantle, right? By, by that time, I guess. Absolutely. Um, but this time, he, he was sure of himself. He had grown into it. Yeah. The confidence was there. George Steinbrenner was, was a good friend. Oh, okay. And in the latter part of the book, when you get to it, you'll find a letter from Steinbrenner, which was unusual for me. With Steinbrenner, I used to have like my own scouting report on him. The problem was that George had a better scouting report on me. So it was a battle of wits, but he always reserved time for me in spring training, a solo job, no no mass interview. And in the interview with him, I'd show up by lobbying a couple down the middle. How's your team going to be? Boom, over the home field, over the home runs. And then I'd start working up into items like collusion. Well, I know what collusion is now, so, you know, but no no guy in the union is going to tell me how much i got to pay a ball player. And then he went into the fact that I don't think it's fair that I have to pay these guys all these millions of dollars on what I think they're going to do instead of what they're doing. 
Is that, is that's not fair, is it? That doesn't happen to the police else. I got to pay them what they did two years ago. That shouldn't be. And then I said, uh, George, how about this story about you and you thinking about the possibility of going to New Jersey? He looked at me. I said, George? And he started to laugh. I said, George, is that your answer? He said, yes, that's my answer. And he just kept laughing and laughing and laughing. And after that, it was a wonderful way to go off. So after that, he wrote me a letter. I sent him a copy of the tape. And I said, he, the letter was, he said, Bob, I know I shouldn't have gone off just laughing. But I said, it reminded me so much of my father who told me whenever you get to an impasse, don't say anything. We'd have been to that impasse. I didn't want to see anything else, so I laughed it off. But we're still the same great friends. Forgive me. I wish you well in your career, and I'm a great rooter of yours. Very nice. Yeah. Very, very <laughs> yeah. nice. Radio.com. Radio. 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 I was just looking at the photos in here, and you have had uh, just the, an amazing uh, time going through from the uh, amount of players you've seen. I see pictures in there with uh, Jerry Lewis and Don Lawson, and I can go on and on and on. Uh, a lot of characters, a lot of people, you know, a lot of, a lot of roads, you know, the, the great Nick games. I know you went back and did a game with Breeny and Clyde, uh, you know, yeah. so, uh, you know, in those great Nick games, you did that game. You did that game when the Knicks broke the record when Kuzi came off the bench that night. That's I was right. watching that game. I remember. I remember, I remember watching that game. Yeah. So do a lot of people listening right now. Remember watching that game. So you've done. You've been in the right place at the right time. You know, Knicks have won two championships. I did the TV. I'm ready to go back if they win a third. Absolutely. <laughs> you know that. You know they waiting for you to come back. That's, yeah. that's all it will take. You're gonna have to fight Mink though. Though Mink's going. Mink oh. wants to be back for that next championship. He's a good play-by-play play man too. Yeah, bingo. That's Mink. Bingo. That's it. Um, Listen, I appreciate it. It's nice of you to come in and do an hour with us. It went too fast, unfortunately. Maybe we'll come back and do it again. I want to give uh, folks, and seriously, I mean this, if you want a book that will answer a lot of your questions or if you just want to reminisce over one of the great broadcasting careers, the book is Bob Wolf's Complete Guide to Sportscasting, Skyhorse uh, Sky Publishing. Uh, pick it up. You will enjoy it. It's uh, very insightful. And like I said, whether you're someone who aspires or someone who likes the history of uh, what we do, uh, he has done a terrific job with it, and he is uh, one of the true legends of our business. So thank you for coming in and spending an hour with me. It's very nice of you, Bob. Thanks very much. Just a wonderful hour, Mike. Thank you so very much. I do hope you enjoyed this interview with my dad and with Mike uh, this morning. I, I want to give my sincere thanks to Mike Francesa and of course, to Mark Chernoff, Dove Kramer, Tom Lugauer, and for that matter, all of my friends and colleagues here at, at WFAN. The outpouring of love from sports fans uh, to my mom and to my family over this last week has been incredible. We are truly, truly touched and most grateful. Now, my dad didn't want a funeral, but there will be a memorial service for him sometime in either uh, later September or early October. We'll be sure to get the place and time announced. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.